as he's uh, really he's defending the the gospel that he proclaims to the Galatians and uh, and how his own experience uh, is testimony to the truth of that gospel. Uh, last week we heard how the sovereign work of God in saving him was a confirmation of that gospel. I asked the question, how does a person become a true Christian? And the answer we saw was because not of not anything we do, but because of what God has done in choosing us, in calling us, in revealing Jesus to us and in us. In hindsight, I probably should have asked the question, uh, why does a person become a Christian? Because really this morning's passage uh, answers more fully the question, how does a person become a true Christian? Because it speaks of the actual work that God does uh, in me, what takes place in me. But as I said, Paul is, uh, Paul is talking about his own story, his own experience, uh, and part of that was to uh, talk about his relationship with the other, apostle, uh, the other apostles. And we saw that Paul uh, visited Jerusalem, uh, he presented to the apostles the gospel that he was proclaiming to the Gentiles, and he was given the right hand of fellowship with no requirement to change anything that he was preaching. Now, Cephas, Peter, Cephas is another name for Peter, he was one of the apostles who endorsed Paul and that's significant because Peter was the first of the apostles to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Let's uh, read the story of how it happened. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticised him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to me. Looking at it closely I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptised with water, 
but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now this incident here in the book of Acts happens around the the year 39 or 40. So seven years before the confrontation that Paul describes in Galatians. So we might say, well, what's wrong with you, Peter? Surely after having such a clear vision from God, such an amazing experience of seeing the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles, And after seven years of seeing God at work in the Gentiles, you'd think he would be solid in his conviction about Gentiles and Jews being together in the church. This is a solemn heads up to us. Uh, I warned you that as we go through Galatians there will be some warnings to us. Peter had an experience that was very clearly from God. It was a strategic point in the rolling out of Christ's agenda to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. However, we cannot and must not assume that our experiences, even when they're clearly given to us by God, will be enough to carry us through into the future and enable us to always stand firm. I can look back on the things that God has done in my life and the ways in which he's worked in me and through me, but those experiences are not my final authority. They're not the foundation upon which I live today. My final authority and foundation should be the word of God, the scriptures. God will give me experiences that will confirm the truth of his word but I must always interpret my experiences by the word. So in verse 16 Peter says I remembered the word of the Lord. His understanding of the Gentiles receiving the gift of the Spirit came from Jesus' teaching. And so he knew that what was happening to them was the same thing that happened to the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, which itself was a fulfilment of the scriptures of the prophecy given by Joel. Now in this incident, that uh, this experience that Peter had, God was driving home two key truths of the Gospel. The first is that the Gospel is for all people, not just for Jews. That was promised from the very beginning in God's covenant with Abraham. Through his seed all nations would be blessed. So this incident was what we could call the Gentile Pentecost in which the promised gift of the Spirit was shown to be for Gentiles as well as Jews. The second thing that God was driving home is that salvation is through faith 
not works. Peter said, God gave the same spirit, the same gift, sorry, to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of the spirit was received as a gift through faith, not by keeping the law. So these Gentiles, they didn't first have to become Jews before they could put their trust in the Jewish Messiah. They could come directly to Christ through faith. And this is what's at stake in Galatia. These two big questions, how are we saved and who may be saved? And these two issues are intertwined. We might say they're a bit like the proverbial chicken and egg, which comes first. What was going on in the hearts of these men who came to Antioch from Jerusalem and led Peter and the other Jewish Christians into hypocrisy? Was it, was it their desire to justify themselves by their works or was it their dislike for people who weren't like them? Were they legalists or were they racists? Well, we can see that regardless of what the primary motivation of their hearts was, the outcome was the same. It was not in step with the truth of the Gospel. See, if the issue was primarily self-justification through keeping the law, then the law required them to do certain things, to abstain from certain foods and to separate themselves from Gentiles because they were God's wholly distinct people. So a legalistic drive will naturally cause us to separate ourselves from, to look down upon others who don't act or speak or look or eat like us in fear that we might be dragged down, that we might be contaminated by them. If the issue was primarily they just didn't like the Gentiles, well, the law then provided them a convenient excuse to separate themselves in a way that appeared to be pious and legitimate and truly spiritual. If we feel a dislike for a certain uh, people based on their race or their culture or their social status or any other of the multiple divisions that human beings make between each other, we'll normally find a set of rules or a law that will justify our actions. Sinful human hearts are very adept at dressing up sin to make it look like righteousness. So there were these, probably these two motivations that intertwined and overlapped but I think, I think this second motivation which we might call racism can actually be traced back to the first motivation, the motivation of legalism. This is the most basic, most fundamental drive of fallen human beings. We think we can be righteous in our own standing. We don't need a moral authority outside of ourselves like God. We don't need that to tell us the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. That was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't it? 
Romans 1 describes what happened there. Although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See what they didn't do? They didn't honour or give thanks to God. And see what they did do? They claimed to be wise. But what was the fruit of their claimed wisdom, their claimed self-sufficiency? Well, they became fools. They knew shame. The shame drove a wedge between one another and they hid behind their clothes, fig leaves, and then they hid from God amongst the trees and they shifted the blame to others for what they'd done. When we insist on our own righteousness, when we insist we are good enough in and of ourselves, it will affect the way we relate to one another. And there will be two things that will happen in how we relate to others. Firstly, we'll always compare and contrast ourselves with others, making sure that they're shown up to be worse than us so that comparatively we can look good. We identify something in their character, in their behaviour, in order to highlight how righteous we are because we're not like that. See how Paul picks up on this in verse 15. He uses the language that was typical of a Jew at the time, not to endorse it but to actually show how it's shown to be false by the Gospel. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. See how the distinction's drawn. A Jew was automatically in, according to the flesh, which straight away makes them superior to anyone else. And they'll justify their smugness about this by defining the Gentiles, those outside, as sinners. The Gentiles were sinners on two counts. Firstly, they were idolaters, the greatest of all sins, And secondly, they indulged in behaviour that the law prohibited. So, we make ourselves appear righteous by pointing out other people's sin. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple? Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is this dynamic. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that the tax collector doesn't thank God that he's not a hypocrite like that Pharisee over there. He knows he stands alone as a sinner before God and it's only God's mercy, not his comparison to anyone else by which he's justified. 
So if we have a legalistic frame of mind, we'll compare ourselves to one another. But secondly, ironically, we'll also be seeking the approval of others. As we see Paul, uh, Peter, doing in verse 12. He drew back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. If we're trying to find our own righteousness before God in the things we do, we'll never be secure. We'll never have an assurance of salvation because we know deep down the high standard of perfection that God demands in his law. We'll never be sure that we've done enough what's required to earn God's favour and to keep it. So we settle for second best, the favour of people. Remember Paul's words back in 1 verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's what Peter was doing. He feared the disapproval of the circumcision party, so he changed his behaviour in order to earn their approval. And they embraced him and they affirmed him in his obedience to the law. The approval of human beings serves as a de facto for the all-elusive approval of God if we're trying to justify ourselves by our works. And the name for this behaviour given in verse 13 there is hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be someone they're not. It was the word used for the actors in the Greek theatre who wore a mask to assume the character's identity while hiding their true identity. Hypocrisy is when a sinner pretends to be righteous. When we try to present a facade of self-justification to mask the reality of our sinful heart. Now all of this, this dynamic, this behaviour is a form of slavery, of bondage. That's what Jesus referred to when he said everyone who makes a practice of sin is a slave to sin. But it's also the slavery from which Jesus sets us free through the gospel. Jesus went on to say, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So let's see how in the following verses that work of setting us free from sin, from hypocrisy, from self-justification is accomplished in us by Christ. Firstly, we see, as I've already pointed out, this division between Jews and Gentiles in verse 15. Jews considered themselves on the inside because of their birthright. Their birthright gave them access to the law and therefore they could obey the law and earn and keep God's favour by doing that. By contrast, the Gentiles were outside because They didn't have the law and because they worshipped idols and so they were sinners. But then the Gospel comes and tells us that a person cannot be justified by works of the law but only through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now it's important that we note the the different words in that first sentence, uh, by and through. A legalist thinks that their works at what are what justifies them, that they are justified by works of the law. But a Christian doesn't think that the works of the law have simply been replaced with another work called faith. It doesn't say we are saved by faith, but through faith. As we saw last week, it's not faith that causes my salvation. It's the work of God in me that saves me. Faith is simply the response that my renewed heart has to this salvation. It's the means through which I receive what God has already done sovereignly in the cross. So in that sense, faith isn't me starting to do something new or different, it's me stopping doing something, stopping trying to accomplish this impossible task of righteousness by works. But what that means for anyone who took pride in their Jewishness that they were knocked down from their privileged position. He says, if, but if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. The impossibility of being justified by the law demolishes that divide between Jew and Gentile. It puts everyone on the same footing, not by bringing the Gentiles up to the level of the Jews, but by bringing the Jews down to the same level as the Gentiles. In which he says, we too, meaning we who were born Jews, are found to be just like the Gentile sinners. To see this idea fleshed out in more detail, just have a read of Romans 1 to 3. Got page 23. There's page 24. Romans 1 to 3 is a much uh, more detailed fleshing out of these few verses. Now, the argument of the circumcision party, those who took pride in their Jewishness, is that this is a scandalous claim. If this is the case, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. See, to say that Jews are no better than Gentiles sounds like a denial of all that God has done in the previous 2,000 years of history, from choosing Abraham to setting apart Israel to be his holy people, to saying to them, you will be distinguished by, from all the other nations by your righteous laws that I'm giving you. And if the end result of all of that history is that the Jews have ended up just as much sinners as everyone else, then this gospel 
which is saying you're not justified by the law, is making Christ to be a servant of sin. Because it sounds like he's calling people to ignore the law, which is supposed to stop people from sinning, isn't it? But that's where they've got the law all wrong. Paul says, if, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. See, the law was never given with the purpose of fixing sin, of stopping sin. It was never designed to be the way that people could save themselves from their sin. If we view it in that way, of course, we're going to think that in spite of whatever Christ accomplished, we still need to add works to make it effective. But see what this verse says. Paul, Paul, through preaching the gospel, was tearing something down. Now, what did he tear down? He tore down this idea that someone could be justified by the law. Now, what the circumcision party wanted him to do was to rebuild this ruin by adding works back into the gospel, adding the law back in. But he says, if I did that, I would be a transgressor. Now, he makes the point of using a different word here to the word sinner. The word sinner implies falling short of a standard. It speaks to the, the character and the nature of a person, hence the designation of Gentiles as sinners. But transgress means to go against or to violate a command. Uh, The Gentiles were sinners because they didn't have the law. A transgressor is someone who has the law but goes against it. So he's not saying that he would be sinning if he added the law to the gospel, even though he would be, but that he'd be using the law in a wrong way. He'd be transgressing the law as a whole body. He wouldn't be using it the way that God intended it to be used, not to fix the problem of sin, but to reveal and make us aware of sin, to bring us under judgment so that we're forced to flee to the mercy of God in Jesus. And that's what verses 19 and 20 tell us. These two verses are parallel statements. Verse 19 tells us, what the purpose and design of the law was and verse 20 tells us how God actually accomplished it in Jesus. So verse 19, for through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. The purpose of the law was to kill me by exposing my sin and by settling the matter once and for all. It's impossible for me to ever reach this standard of perfection that's required of anyone who's to be considered a child of God. Why? Because that perfection is actually the perfection of God himself. Jesus said you must be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the Lord doesn't give me life, it deals death. It condemns me to hell. It provides no way of escape. But that's only the first part. The law is the necessary preparation for the gospel. It brings me to a place of repentance 
so I can then see that it's God who gives me true life because it comes from him and not from myself. So that's the purpose of the law, but the question remains, how has God actually done that in me? That's why verse 20 explains verse 19, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The way that I died through the law and to the law was I was united to Christ so that when he was crucified, when he came under all the weight of the holy and righteous judgement of the law that declares the soul that sins shall die, I also received the judgement of the law in Christ. To say that Jesus fulfilled the law doesn't mean he obeyed every single command in the law, but that in him, both in his life and in his death, we see the law's demands carried out to their fullest extent. The full extent of God's righteous judgement upon human sin was seen in the cross. Every sin of his people was paid for. The justice of God was perfectly displayed as Jesus bore the wrath in full. And because he bore my sin in his death, he bore me in his death. I have been crucified with him. In him, the judgment of God on me has been completed. It's finished. Now, because I'm united with Christ in his death, I'm also united with him in his resurrection. So while I now live to God, it's not my life, it's Christ's life in me. Because he lives to God, so do I. This union with Christ wasn't just for my conversion though, not just for my initial salvation, I was saved by grace through faith in Christ but I continue to live by grace through faith. So he goes on and says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we'll see in next week's passage, I don't start by grace and then continue by works. I was united to Christ, not just to bring me from death to life, from darkness to light, but so that I might remain in life now and be brought to the Father's goal for me in glory, all by pure grace of Christ living in me. Jesus' death for me wasn't to get me a ticket to heaven when I die, but to enable me to live to God now and into eternity. So to try to add works, the law, back into the gospel is to add our works to Christ, to say that what Jesus did was insufficient and needs me to somehow complete it. But it's actually worse than that. Adding works to grace doesn't merely reduce grace, it nullifies it completely. Verse 21, 
says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we think we need to add one iota to God's grace to make it effective, or that God did most of the work but we need to do the rest, or that God moved most of the way towards us but we need to close the gap by moving towards him, if we think that grace is 99.99% of salvation and our faith is the missing 0.01%, then we're nullifying grace. Grace is all or nothing. Either it is God who saves or we're the ones who try to save ourselves. There's no joint action, there's no partnership. God does it all so that all the glory might go to him for his glorious grace. So Christ didn't die for nothing. He didn't die to make salvation a possibility, only effective when we activate it by our response. His death actually accomplished salvation, such that we can, with Paul, speak of ourselves as having been crucified with Christ. Even though none of us were born or even conceived when Jesus died historically, what was accomplished there was so certain, so guaranteed that we can say when Christ died, I died. When Christ rose, I rose with him. If you belong to Christ, the certainty of your salvation is as certain as the historical, physical reality of the wooden cross and the nails through his hands and his feet and the stone across the front of the tomb. Certain, it's guaranteed. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Let's pray. Father, we put all of our trust, all of our hope, all of our confidence for life and for death in your Son. Amen.